You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is a social entrepreneur and attorney who focuses on startup companies, nonprofit organizations, and arts and entertainment law issues. Creative Confidential starts now. Today we are joined by one of the hardest working men in show business. <laughs> I think that's an accurate statement. The great Pat Petrillo. Pat, thanks oh, for joining us man. today. Thank you. I don't know about great, but thank you, man. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Um, wanted to talk about how you've built your career. There are a lot of people out there, you know, young drummers, and, and not just necessarily drummers, but... Um, on, you know, musicians on any instrument or uh, people that work in other creative disciplines, whether it's, you know, visual arts or, or writing or, or what have you. And it's such an elusive thing to figure out how to build a career doing what you love, producing creative work. Mm-hmm. And you really have set, I think, a, a great example for others and, you know, wanted to chat a little bit about, you know, what you're doing now. So everyone gets a flavor for, uh, you know, your many, <laughs> your many endeavors because you, you've, right. got, you've got a ton of stuff going on. A couple of things in the fire. Yep. So, you know, where would you, where would you want to start? Well, in terms of now, my biggest focus is my band. I've always wanted to put uh, an R&B big band together. Um, I've, I've backed vocal artists over the years, Gloria Gaynor, Patti LaBelle, and great singer-songwriters you know, like Glenn Burtnick and Constantine Mouloulis and a bunch of other artists. But I wanted to put my own group together to play charts, uh, some originals that other guys have written. Plus, um, you know, I've admired Gordon Goodwin and his great writings, uh, Los Angeles, like Grammy uh, kind of composer. I wanted to play charts like that and do my own band and sort of be a little more self-sufficient. So that's the that's the first thing. The NYC Big Rhythm Band debuts this week uh, coming in New York and I plan on doing a lot more with that band throughout the year and, and going forward. Uh, it's a great group of musicians and uh, who played with a lot of different artists. The keyboard player is uh, David Cookies, um, Taylor Swift's uh, musical director and I got Don Harris on trumpet, and Sheik's trumpet player, and some New York horn guys, and just really good bands. So that's kind of my current focus. Um, but from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I'm, I'm always trying to find a way to make money. <laughs> and I think everybody in the industry needs to, needs to do that. And if it's not playing, it's through teaching. If it's not teaching, it's through maybe developing products. Um, so the music industry, you have to wear multiple hats, just like any other industry, really. I think Sometimes people put too much emphasis on, man, I'm just going to be a player. And if I'm not a player, I'm not successful. I mean, because that's not true. Um, You're always going to be a player. It's just at some point in time, you're playing more times than others, really. And on those, you know, it's those I hear from a lot of touring musicians, but I'm not playing on the road or if I'm not doing this, a lot of downtime, man, I'm not making no money. Well, that's your fault. <laughs> I mean that's 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 your choice and your prerogative. To, you know, you want to sit around and watch, you know, Oprah. That's your thing. But there's many different things you can do from teaching. And some people say, "Oh man, you know, I don't want to teach." Well, you know, that's fine. But you know, I'm not saying you should do it for the money. But 
I mean, you should do it because you like to teach. You know, that altruistic thing is important. You know, you don't want to just sit around and take people's money either. But you want to, you want to, and you should want to teach and give back and at the same time make money on it. You know, so teaching has always been something that I do and I've always done. I mean, I used to teach kids in the neighborhood when I was 14, 15 years old. I'd go to their house for 10 bucks and, you know, teach them rudiments <laughs> or whatever, you know. So um, that's kind of what I'm doing now. And then I have some other products we could talk about too. Well, the days of earning millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars through record deals is, I think by and large, everybody can agree that those days are over. Right. And the emphasis has been for you know there you know there were day not that long ago there were musicians who made their entire living just working in the studio and recording one you know one album after the next mm-hmm. um for all the reasons that have been well documented and we don't need to go into all of those you know the recording industry as a avenue for musicians as an avenue for musicians to earn a living has cratered. I mean, it's, it's, and it won't return. It definitely has. But I mean, you know, there's guys who are doing it, but there's guys who are doing it who have been doing it for a while. My buddy Stephen Wolf is on a lot of records, great drummer, more producer than a drummer anymore. You know, you're Sean Pelton's still going to be on records, you know? And, but um, that is few and far between the days of Gad bouncing around from studio to studio, you know, doing, doing a jingle and then doing a, you know, doing a stuff record and then doing a, you know, a, uh, a Paul Simon record and then this and that and the other, you know, those days are gone for sure. And, you know, even guys like Gad are always doing their own thing. You know, they're always putting their own bands together and that's inspiring to me. So, you know, not being a songwriter, I was never going to make a lot of money make making records anyway. And, you know, and I never got into it from that aspect. Some people do, you know, they've gone on records early and they continue to play on other people's records, but, if you don't write it, you don't make money anyway. You just a you know a three hour session, you know union contract three hundred and some dollars. You know see you later. You know so, right. you know and those have really shrunk down. And then those guys who are doing it independently are wanting to hire musicians on the cheap always. So you know it's never going to be a union recording unless it's a real record. Most records are are demo slash records. Yeah man, I want to record this record for 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 iTunes. <laughs> Or if I just to put it on my site, you know, and they're not going to make that much money. They're going to spend more money than they are making money on them, you know, to put it together. So they're going to want you to, to cut eight songs for $200, you know? So. And if any, yeah. if anything, the, you know, the recordings have now become, you know, to borrow a, a phrase from another industry, they have become loss leaders. You're going to invest some money in, you know, producing as high a quality recording as you can, but because of streaming and Spotify and Pandora, it's very unlikely you will ever see, you'll ever recoup that expenditure. They've become very expensive calling cards, basically, you know, and, you know, to break out to maybe one day, I mean, ultimately these people are doing this so they can get heard and then play with an artist. Maybe some artists will find them and like what they do and hire them on the road. So I think the touring money has, and even big time bands have found that out. That's why, you know, Foreigners reuniting and this group's reuniting and that group's reuniting. 
40th anniversary of this one, 80th anniversary of this one, 50th anniversary of this one, and they're out making money. They ain't stupid, you know, it's because they're not making as much in record sales as they were, you know, and, and uh, even if they put out a greatest hits record, who's going to buy it? Nobody. Nobody's buying records anymore. So their best bet is to go on the road, you know, and make money. That's why Sticks, I mean, Sticks hasn't really put out a new record recently, but they're touring all over the place because they've got a legion of fans and they've got new fans and they're making money on the road. So that's how they make their money. You know, so the days of going into the studio like the Beatles did and never touring again and making millions on their records is way over. Now it's just completely heads over heels backwards. Now they're making money on the touring and nothing on the records. <laughs> so, you know, for me, for me as a record, as a drummer making a, making a living in the industry, I try to do it three different ways, teaching, playing, and products, you know, and as a percussionist, you can develop products that haven't been, that haven't been developed yet. Definitely. I mean, if you just kind of put a little ingenuity behind it. So playing, I'm always, you know, looking to do that with various people. And, um, and if that, if not with other people hiring me or doing a mini tour or a clinic, then I'm going to put my own group together, which I did with my NYC big rhythm Band. my products. Um, I have a, the practice pad, I guess, which was my first product that I designed, the multi-level practice pad called the P4 that initially, as a Ludwig artist, Ludwig wanted to distribute it and be the main, had that be their main pad. And, you know, I learned a lot about distribution. I learned a lot about how to get it on the marketplace and pricing and what's your cut and this and that. Inevitably, it did okay, didn't do great. It was in, you know, wasn't their thing to do. So, um you know, I let that contract go, and when it was over, I didn't re-up it, and because it was made overseas, it was made in China, so I learned a lot about that and costs and all that stuff. So I I was determined to get it made here in the states, and I just sourced it here in uh, Kentucky, um, actually where I went to college, which was Moorhead State University in uh, in Moorhead, Kentucky. I found a guy who's a wood laver and a metal laver has CNC routing machine, so he's now manufacturing the pad and. Through, you know, this is all about connections, right? Through my live lessons with Drumio.com, which I do. I've been out there a few times and do my own. I have my own spot, which we'll talk about my video lessons. They liked it and want to distribute it. So we've, we launched it two, well, going on, I guess, two years ago now. Or was it last, uh, last January 1st? It was released and it sold a 1,000 in a day. Let's back up just so. a little bit for our non-drummer, uh, our non-drummer friends that, that may be listening. So a practice pad is exactly what it sounds to be. It's a rubber, it is a hard rubber surface that you can play with drumsticks on the surface and it simulates the response that you get back from a, yeah. a drum head. Now, sure. practice pads are a very, here's the thing about the P4 that intrigues me. The practice pad is a very, old concept yeah you know 70 or 80 years maybe and traditionally all a practice pad is or was i mean it, it couldn't be any more simple a, a piece of wood uh some some type of rubber surface and it's affixed to the wood by glue i mean that yeah. it doesn't get any more complicated than yeah. that but even before that remo made them plastic 
you know, and right. was, there were heavy plastic and all this, you know, it, it was loud though. So then uh, HQ came out um, with uh, with the practice pad that was basically gum rubber on wood, and that was in the, I would say, more in the late 70s, early 80s. Now, here's where your innovation comes into play, though. And this may sound, to a non-drummer, this may sound like a small thing, but it really is not. In And Pat's pad, the P4 that he designed, had different types of surfaces because when you sit behind a drum kit, you've got metal surfaces that you play on with the cymbals. You've got plastic surfaces that you hit the, with the drum heads that are different tensions. So you get different feedback on, on multiple surfaces. That's what Pat simulated through the P4. Am I doing a good enough commercial yeah, for this? Yeah, it's four, different, <laughs> it's four different types of rubber on one 12-inch round surface. But not only that, it has three different levels. So within, I decided to say, okay, so the ingenuity, how did you come up with this? You know, what the world didn't need was another practice pad with gum rubber glued on it, you know, piece of wood, which is what you, you said. And so, you know, in, in my teaching, this is where the teaching spurred on a product idea because when I was teaching at the Drummers Collective in New York, I would often uh, work with guys uh, with two pads and put, I experimented with putting one pad, uh, a real feel HQ pad had two different surfaces. When you flip it over, there was a hard rubber surface and on the other surface, it was more soft. So I would use the soft uh, rubber on one, then I'd flip the other one over and sort of put it halfway on top of it. You know, and design it so that I had two different surfaces. So I had a hard surface on the top and a soft surface on the bottom, which simulated like a ride cymbal and a snare drum at different levels. That got the wheels turning, and I said, "Man, you know, could we? Can I do a practice pad that has multiple levels?" So the first, the first design was actually two levels. Uh, the first prototype, and then I turned it into three levels and multiple fields of rubber. So. You know, it just took a couple years of R&D, and my brother made me a bunch of prototypes in his basement as a woodworker, and I sourced the rubber in, in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And so all of this stuff started coming out of the fact that I was teaching. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So the teaching spurred this design on. So it's, you know, I needed a, something that was different. So this is very different, which is why it sells so well. Um, so there's only so many ways to skin a cat, right? So that's true. This, this true. practice pad is it. This is the the big the you know the difference maker in terms of practice pads. So you know, um, so Drumio is distributing it, and they've sold a lot. They sold a lot. We initially had a six month contract, and they wanted to have an exclusive for that. Then it sold so well, they wanted a longer one. So I decided a five-year exclusive distribution, which I don't know, is good in some ways and maybe not in others because it's, you know, they're in control of pricing, they're in control of the advertising, which they do well, but they don't do great in terms of getting it overseas, I think, because their pricing is a bit high. But, you know, that's on them. They have a certain amount of pads they have to sell. So it's been a big learning curve for me. I've worked into the contract um, to have X amount of pads sold a year, so I have a guarantee for the rights for them to have this exclusivity. They have to also guarantee me that they're going to sell X amount of pads. <laughs> well, and for all of you business types out there that may not even be musicians, um, Pat essentially built a better mousetrap. That's really right. what <laughs> it, it boils down to. You always hear that saying that, you know, someday someone's going to build a better mousetrap. Well, in this space, Pat has accomplished that. 
And I think a lot of musicians or creative types, but particularly musicians will look at, okay, my income streams from performing are X. My income streams from, you know, maybe I will write a lesson method book. Uh, maybe right. I'll write a drum set book or maybe I'll write a snare drum stick control book yeah, or something like books, that. They don't sell that much anymore either. <laughs> well, right, because it's so tough with with the way people exchange information now. Yeah. And even though, you know, the pages and content of a publication may be copyrighted, People still do it. People still yeah, they seal it. They, you know, it's all everything's for free. You it's know. it's 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 very tough. So so having a product line is a terrific way to bolster uh, your you know your ability to earn a living. And I think that it's important to think of yourself. You know, as an artist, yes, but also as a craftsman. And I think the difference between those two things is this. While an artist may be consumed with creating high art or the best recording or the best performance they're capable of, of producing, mm -hmm. a craftsman is concerned about doing solid work that customers are going to appreciate and that customers will appreciate enough that they'll become repeat customers. So, right. so the difference between being an artist and being a craftsman is doing, you know, being concerned with high ideals on one hand, and on the other hand, being a very practical, uh, taking a very practical approach to, okay, I'm a professional musician. How am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to pay the mortgage? Yeah. You know, et cetera. So I think that's one thing you do better than many, many other guys that are and gals that are that are out there. Well, listen, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, always been I'm always looking towards the next thing, you know. So the, the product of the, of the practice pad was great um, and has been great selling really well on uh, drumio.com. In order, it's on Amazon as well. And then, um, you know, in terms of another product, is one more that's just now launching. That I just did a little pre-Christmas launch, and that's you know, um, I had this idea a couple of years back about well, what about you know when people practice on a practice pad? Um, at least for me, most people you put it in a snare drum basket, and that's it. Then you got to get a music stand, or you put the music up on the table somewhere, and then you got your phone and, and a metronome and. And you have all of these things when you're practicing on the pad, you know, all these materials and you have to go buy a music stand, which costs 50 bucks. And, and then, you know, where do you keep your metronome and what if you have a cup of coffee and all this? So I was like, man, you know, it's, my practice space is very disorganized. So one, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was create a practice pad organizing organizer or an organizing unit that you can put your practice pad on and have everything you need to practice in one thing. So. I started working on drawings with my wife about coming up with a, a practice pad workstation that incorporates a music stand, uh, a stick holder, tubes, uh, of course, the place that you put the practice pad, a place for your phone, a cup holder, uh, you know, pencil holder, a metronome holder, 
all these things that's a all-in-one um, organizer. And it's called the Practice Pad Workstation. And um, it's made from the same guy that's making the practice pad. So, you know, I've got these ideas that I'm now starting to put together and he's able to manufacture them, which is great. So this, this idea is, again, unique. I try to make things that are unique, a better mousetrap, or build something that's never been done before. I mean, that's the only way something is really going to sell, I think. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly right. And it's, you know, once you, you know, once you create that initial product category, it's the next logical thing is to build on what you're already offering. So I, I think that's, yeah, that makes the most sense. And it enlarges your customer base because you're giving them something that they're familiar with, but there are, there are some extra features to this version and then it can just keep growing, you know, from, from there. I mean, basically I, the whole, the hardest part for me is the distribution aspect. Now, you know, I got people from, you know, Brazil and this place and Af in, in uh, Australia and Africa and people are saying, you know, hitting me on messages on Facebook. How can I get this? Where do I get this? So the hardest part now is securing distribution. So I'm in talks a little bit with Drumio about doing the same kind of distribution thing. But when I go to NAM here next week, I'll probably have a couple of meetings with some other people. And of course, there's Amazon. So, um, you know, getting that product out there is, is something that from a distribution standpoint may be the biggest challenge in terms of pricing and who am I going to maybe do an exclusive with? Is it going to be Sweetwater? Is it going to be, G, you know, GC, Musician's Friend, you know? what online or in-store thing because you know music stores aren't really bringing in a lot of new product we touched on books and, and dvds dvds are done man. You know, right yep instructional dvds are history you know and hudson music you know they'll put out one every two years you know because it costs too much to you know to to produce you know as a matter of fact mark Giuliana's recent thing was like uh a, a GoFundMe scenario, and so basically, it didn't cost them anything. They raised the money to produce it, so it's very smart on their behalf. So there's methods now. You don't have to sit around and wait for a deal. So there's good and the bad, right? The good is, or the bad is, that those companies aren't releasing a whole lot of stuff anymore. The good is, they're they're finding new ways to to create product, and now you can, you know, don't have to sit around and wait for a deal. I mean. The funny thing with even with record deals, we can re, we can relate it to record deals. You know, a deal to do a DVD, an instructional DVD, it's all the same thing. You want a company to offer you a deal and you get a, a royalty. That's the model, right? Right. So the model of that is you're going to make like pennies <laughs> on that model generally, and they'd have to sell a boatload for you to make any kind of substantial money. Ex and, exactly. And the fact that they're not selling that much anymore is nothing from nothing is nothing. So if they're not selling that many, you know, the deal is still 10%. Well, I got news for you. I'm making a heck of a lot more than 10% on well, the product, you know, now doing it on my own. You don't have to sell that many. Exactly right. I mean, I tell my, uh, my undergrad business students that, you know, there has been an evolution in this concept of, of the pathway to the customer. How many steps are there in between manufacture and the actual point of sale? Now, it used to be in many 
Um, you know, it's it still is this way in retail, whether it's whether it's toys or clothing. You know, the apparel industry is still very much this way. Uh, yeah. But with specifically with what we're talking about, there used to be record companies. There used to be gatekeepers like a uh, a company uh, called Hudson, which for those of you who don't know, they were a company that produced instructional materials. Uh, so well, they still do, just not as many as they did. Okay, so in other words, what Hudson does is they could bring a drummer like Pat into a TV studio with a multi-camera shoot. I mean, you know, big production value. Pat would illustrate some concepts from his teaching style that would be packaged into a DVD, which then got sold, you know, through the mail, physical copies. I mean, all of those steps cost a lot of money. And as a result, all of those steps in between what Pat is teaching and what the student learns when they put the DVD in the player, all of those steps reduce the net dollars that go to the creator, to Pat in this case. Mm-hmm. Now, Pat's got, uh, so we didn't even talk about drumstudiolive.com mm-hmm. yet, but you've got a setup where you can direct to the consumer with no middleman produce your own multi-camera video content. And this has really become the name of the game now. It, it is. There's a lot of guys doing it. And, you know, when I was teaching inside of a physical four walls building at, in New York, I started seeing that, you know, the video thing was starting to become a thing. And, and I, like I, was, I said initially in this conversation, I'm always looking for the next thing and trying to get in that lane, much like when I drive. I'm, I'm just trying to bounce into another lane and get to where I got to be, you know, as quickly as I can, especially in, in this area, New York and New Jersey. I found this, you know, I seen these guys doing it, and I seen Dromeo and Mike Johnson and all those other guys. I'm like, man, I can, I know I can, from an educational standpoint, I've been doing this for a minute, and I can create pretty damn good content. So all I need is the is the facility to do this. So Kickstarter was not new, but you know, people were starting to get on it. So I did a Kickstarter to buy some initial like dirt cheap two hundred dollar cameras and to you know, just to get myself up and running with this. And so I launched the Kickstarter, raised, you know, eight, nine thousand dollars bought a console, some mics, some cameras, and 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 you know, I had a space that I was renting, or that I still am. Um, and so I put my own studio together and started doing live lessons, the design drumstudiolive.com, which is my gateway, as you as you put it, to the globe in terms of um, lessons for the drumming community and they can access that. It's relatively cheap, $14.99 a month. That's like, you know, ridiculous in terms of, right. you know, getting getting content, you know, in terms of a private lesson. Now this will never replace the, the hands-on, one-on-one, you know, in your face. Let me fix this, let me fix that. You know, that was good, that was not good play along with me. Now I can give you like real time feedback. That's, that's not what this is about. It's about general concepts. Take this, practice it. If you get it great, if you don't, oh well, there's not much I can do for you. I mean, quite honestly, even those sites that provide quote unquote feedback, it's not the same. It's not the same thing. 
because I roll up my sleeves and get in in the dirt with students and say, no, man, you know, your hands got to be here and that's got to be softer and that just you're not your mix isn't right. Your time isn't right. You know, that and that real time feedback is what gets, you know, any student to the next level, you know. Um, so drumstudiolive.com, I'm once a week live and then those go into an archive. And if you're a member of the site, you get access to all the lessons in the archive. Plus, you see me once a week live for an hour. You can ask questions. And, um, you know, I have a concept every every lesson that I'm giving, you know, five or six different grooves or some hand stuff or some fill ideas, things like that. So I'm not as big as Drumio, who's got thousands and thousands of people, you know, but it's growing here and there. And it's just, again, my platform to create good educational products. Well, it took, I'm sure, quite a while to refine that delivery oh, yeah. system. I mean, that's well, not what you just described does not come together overnight. Listen, we're all learning, man, and it's a big learning curve, you know, and I tell my kids this, you know, my, my two girls are always learning. I'm always, you know, I'm not the closed minded guy. I say, man, I, I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm talking about. Well, I do on certain things, yeah, but there's a lot of stuff I'm learning, and I have to stay relevant, you know. To stay relevant, you have to keep learning about the new technologies, and I'm not going to be a whiz at it, but I can surely make my way around the stuff. So what happened was, as I got into it, it's funny, I had Steve Gadd come in and do a live lesson, and I've known Steve off and on for a bunch of years, but I did a PASIC Percussive Art Society uh, clinic a few years back, and we hung and came to my clinic, and when he was in Jersey, you know, I called him, and we got together, he came over, he was very gracious, and it was in my early stages, I wish I can have him in now that I have a really good camera set up and do it really well, but he walks into the control and he goes, Pan, how did you learn all this stuff, you know, and his rochester twang you know right and i was like dude it was just a, i'm still learning it's a it's a it's a big learning curve and the guys at drumeo once i hooked up with them they then took me to another level and said okay look if you're gonna i do satellite lessons for them so from my studio pretty much every friday that's drumeo's concept they have like 30 40 guys that have their own video hookup somewhere in their pad or they go to you know their studio or whatever so every day of the week, every single day of the week, they have a live lesson. So my day is sort of Fridays from my space uh, that I do my um, facility. So they're like, okay, so in order for you to do this, you now need to get this software, and now you need to do this, and now you need to do that. And it's like, oh, man. So they gave me a lot of information and taught me what you know what I needed to do, and now it's, it's a well-oiled machine. But... You know, just working together in tandem with them and them teaching me how to do this. And so, you know, they said, man, we need somebody with your chops of educational thing and your experience. You know, you lend credibility to their site. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So that's that's what that's the whole thing is, you know, not that the other guys are not creditable. Don't get me wrong. I'm trying to say that since I've been doing this for a while and I, I've had a lot of success with instructional product over the years there are multiple clinics and master classes and stuff like that so you know them working with me and me working with them is a it's a nice it's a nice team i'm helping them they're helping me so together it's a good teamwork thing you know it's it's interesting when you describe steve gad's reaction to you know to your setup yeah, <laughs> you know, 
if you don't, and this applies no matter what industry you're in, it could be public, it, it could be, uh, you could be out looking for work as a motivational speaker or a marketing consultant mm. or a, a, a drum teacher or um, any kind of service business. If you don't have by now a video strategy, you are going to be left in the dust. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a must right now. And even if you know, with with relatively little investment, you can do a one camera shoot that looks professional. That's that's 1080p and high def yeah. and all of that. But you got to know everybody's got certain angles that they look, you know, a good side and a bad side. Yeah. You have to figure that out. You have to figure camera angles out. Lighting is a huge thing. Yeah, that, yeah, I'm just upgrading my lighting as well. That's all of those things are you learn on the fly. But there's some stuff out there. If you just do a little bit of research, that you can see what lighting to get. And you also got to look at it from the standpoint of what does the audience see, not okay, how do I look, but how do I look to the audience? And in other words, if you're a guitar person or a keyboard person, maybe the camera, if you only got one camera, the camera shouldn't be in front of you. Perhaps it should be to your left side or even above you. Right. So those kind of things is what's going to make my product look the best to other people who may purchase it. So the the takeaway from this part of the conversation is just – just as with any other skill that you want to hone, that you want to get better at, it's practice, trial and error, repetition, repetition. Yeah, and repetition. then stay, stay relevant, stay fresh, and stay stay engaged in the process of learning about your craft, you know, or the tools that, that make up your craft. That's really vital. You know, I didn't know nothing about this, but I said, okay, well. Teach me. I gotta do this. Gotta do that. Okay, cool, cool. And that's how I <laughs> went from there. You know, just kept learning. Now, step. You know, walking back a bit from where you are now. When did you get your start? When did you first start? When did you discover the drums? Man, I've been playing since I was four years old, five years old. So, I mean, my brother had a band. My brother was much older than me. They were playing. You know around and my brother had records and and um so i would just be the guy listening you know sitting around and kid little kid watching the band practice at the neighbor's house or sometimes they'd practice at our house and there'd be drums in the basement and the guy would leave them there for the next practice or whatever and, but you know i would just put records on the on the uh on the machine and just drop the needle and listen to all his beatles records and even my my parents had older records going back to you know, some Elvis, so I played some 78s, you know, from Elvis and, and listening to, um, you know, Buddy Holly and all of these, you know, we're talking like 65, we're in the mid, mid to late 60s, not late 60s, but mid 60s. And so I listened to a lot of music and um, would just, you know, play a real stand up behind the drums and play a real basic beat if the drums were around, you know, real whatever I was feeling and hearing at the time. And I, and I think that at some point, you know, listening to music was my better teacher than even playing because I would just sit around and learn all the lyrics and I knew and probably still know every Beatles song almost that there is pretty much every lyric, drum part, you know, (laughs) 
that there was. So I started doing that and that's that propelled me. And I think I just had a little bit of, you know, um, some people are born with certain gifts of they do things better. Some people are better at math. Some people are better at numbers. Some people are, have, a, have a vocal gift. Some people have a, a physical gift of, a competition of, of could be basketball or, or an athletic gift. I mean, I played sports, but you know, it became obvious that I had a certain little thing with music and and. But it all started as a kid listening so much to to music, and uh, that developed, um, I guess, my ability because as I got into school band, I, you know, got a little better and got into different. You know, we had jazz band in fifth grade, sixth grade, all that stuff. And then right around that time, um, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was about maybe 12. And, you know, my parents always encouraged me. My mom always pushed me, always pushed me to, she saw that I had an interest in this and I had a, I had a talent for it. So she was always looking to push me into lessons. So the first thing she tried to do was bring me to private lessons, <laughs> which is this is a pretty going to be a pretty funny story, you know, considering the fact that uh, I'm now a teacher. But she brought me to this guy. I guess I was around eight or nine, and I and uh, screaming him a dog bark because she was somebody delivering. Um, so she brought me to lessons, and it was upstairs at this music store. And, and I walked into the room. The guy had two Remo practice pad sets. I'll never forget it. Sat down. He goes, all right, well, show me what you can do. You know, and so I just kind of, well, okay. And I just kind of went. <laughs> and he said, something on the he doesn't need lessons. <laughs> <laughs> he don't need no lessons. And you know what? The, I, he, the guy was blown away. I, I vividly remember walking out and he's just shaking his head and he's talking to my mother. He's like, well, well, well okay, well, what do you think? You know, well, I mean, he's doing pretty good on his own. <laughs> what is he, you know, and I, you know, I might have taken one, but I don't even think so. I, you know, I wasn't into it, you know. I was like, well, I don't really need, you know. This is and he kind of affirmed me. He goes, whatever he's doing, just keep him doing it. And I think that might have been the best thing for me, you know, because I think sometimes teachers can just, um, they can stunt a student's growth if they if they kind of put them on the slow track, you know. And I was an ear player always, and I couldn't read a lick, you know. And, you know, for me to learn how to read and sit there and do all that stuff at age eight was probably not necessary. I just needed to play music and listen to music and develop my 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 internal thing. So a long winded answer was I didn't have lessons <laughs> at all. Uh, just kept doing what I was doing. And then by the time I was 12, I got involved in the local drum and bugle corps. Um, you know, my mom, once again, just pushing me through. She saw an ad in the local rag. Um, that, you know, the township that I lived in had a, had a parade corps, a drum and bugle corps. And, um, you know, you can literally get lessons three days a week for like $20, you know, a month or something stupid, you know, and the bus came around, pick you up, brought you to the middle school and, and this and that. So I remember going to my first drum corps practice with my little, you know, like warped, uh, 5A drumsticks, you know, um, uh, regal nylon tips and, walking into this thing i had no idea what i was about to get into other than my mom was bringing me 
and it was it was just it was marching thing. It was rudimental drumming, and it was, hello, this is a paradiddle. <laughs> and uh, I got involved in that, and that was like, that was like my lessons right there, you know. So I always listen, you know, I always had my Beatles records, and I was by that time I was even listening more than James Brown. I was in my eight track stage, or listening to James Brown, or listening to Slot Stone, or listening to to the Beatles still. I was listening to all of this great music that was coming out at the time, you know. Um, so, but then I had my rudimental side. So I'd go to drum corps practice three days a week. So that was my early bringing up. And that's all I did all through school was, you know, drum set and, and then in drum corps. Quite a different, uh, quite a different origin story. I, now, uh, you're the first person I've, I've talked to where, the initial, you know, educational component was the teacher saying, you don't need to continue. <laughs> yeah. He was like, you know, I don't remember the exact words. I do remember him saying like, wow, he's really good and he's doing fine, you know, and, and, you know, he wasn't like, oh yeah, you know, a kid really needs lessons. The guy was very frank. I remember he was very honest and my mom was like, you know, so you asked me if I want to do it. I said, well, you know, I don't know. If he doesn't think I need it, then I don't really think I need it. <laughs> you know? There you go. Just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And, and that's when I think that was the impetus of her to try to find something that challenged me, I think. And that's when drum corps came in. And, and uh, the, you know, I remember after the first practice, I didn't know nobody. You know, it was a good way. I was, I pretty much grew up like an only child. I mean, I had too much older brothers. And, you know, if they were married by the time I was seven. So, you know, I... You know, they were gone. They were right. out of the house. And it was just me, you know. So me and the, and the records and, and then, you know, that drum corps thing became my second family. You know, it became, you know, the, my friends and my neighborhood friends and stuff. So, you know, I learned how to play a little bit of rude metal snare drum and got okay at it, you know, and, and um, developed my coordination quite a bit. And I kind of just moved up the drum corps food chain. <laughs> To, well, to put it mildly, and you you were a member of uh, a drum corps called the Bridgemen from Bayonne, New Jersey, who, you know, really occupy kind of a legendary status. You know, the, those early 80s editions uh, of the Bridgemen in particular, um, you know, there were a lot of good players in there and a lot of history kind of flowed out of that that time period. It was, a, it was a time warp. I mean, um, yeah. The, I mean, I was in. A, I moved up. The, when I say I moved up the food chain, I mean, I, I, I um, you know, I went from that parade corps for a couple of years that I was in to another corps from another town who was a competitive, what they call world class now, but they were just a DCI corps. And uh, I did my first DCI experience, and you know, getting on a bus when I was I was like fourteen. <laughs> getting on a bus and going to Ohio, Pennsylvania, Carolina, and just doing a little mini tour and did my went to my first DCI championships in like seventy five, so I was like fourteen. Stayed there for for like three years. They folded. Then I went to the Bridgman but didn't stick because they already had people so like that day that the Bridgman was like this was seventy eight. They said, well, you know, we already are set, but 
you know, we can we could be an alternate. And it's like, no, I'm not even trying to be an alternate. You know, <laughs> I mean, I want to march. You know, so right. I went to the cadets and I stayed there for two years. And this is a little story. This is how bad teaching could mess you up. I was a pretty good snare drummer at that point in time, playing this not a certain style of you know combinations of rudiments and relaxation and falling and whatever. This goes to any instrument. I got to the cadets. Garfield at that time, and that I was that was my first. I started doing DCI individual um, shows, and at that time they had them over the winter. They had them throughout the Northeast, even in California, wherever you you were competing all winter long at these different. You know, you'd go drive to Boston for this show, and there was a show in Long Island or whatever. You know, and these and these are individual, individual performance solo contests, right? That were in conjunction with a lot of winter guard shows you dig so there'd be indoor winter guard shows and they'd have a a, a, a individual component to that as well you know in a different gym or something you know anyways so i went to my first competition in 78 and and i have to say my drumming got worse i i vividly remember my drumming. man you know this teacher want me to play a certain way and, and it really was messing me up so we were we weren't really good didn't make finals and so i was like all right well I'm gonna, i'll come back to this core in 79 they changed drum instructors i'm not going to name who any of these people are 79 i got even worse as a drummer i placed lower in the design individuals and i was like man something's not right with this i i you know, I enjoy the activity, but me, my drumming is like, I couldn't, I could play better two years ago. And it's like, this is, this is crazy. So, you know, my, I went down in my placement and I said, man, I'm, I'm going to go back to where my heart was from day one, from when my other chord broke up. So I went in 1980 back to Bayonne and I snagged me a snare drum spot in November. <laughs> and I said, I'm. You know, need to get, and I'm glad I, you know, I made the line. They didn't know I had but a couple openings, but I could still play okay, but I wasn't what I used to be. And from then on, everything got better because I was with a better organization, a better teacher, you know, better exercises, better everything. Man, I just, my skills just start, okay. I, I, there was a certain point where skill level got to be bang. Okay, this is what I used to be able to play. <laughs> And then I went to like a different level, you know, and the, the core was really good. The drum line was really good for, you know, I marched, I marched four years, 80 to 83. Right. We won drums two, three of those four years. And my last year, um, we made finals, but did not win drums. The core was like, like getting worse, but the drum line was kind of carrying things. And then me as an individual, I ended up placing third when I was in, um, let's see, the first year actually was, I think I was, I think 13th or something. And then I went up to third and then I finished second twice. And I never won because I had a bit of a penalty. It's kind of a long story, but you know, <laughs> we'll you don't. That's, that's for our part two. Well, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting stuff, you know, back from those days that we'll, we'll have to get into. On, it was uh, fun and it taught me a lot. And I have to tell you, the biggest thing, and this goes for anybody, the biggest thing that it taught me was tenacity. 
And in this business, and like any business, but in particular in this business, you have to have tenacity and you have to be, you can't like settle for mediocrity. You know, settling for mediocrity in terms of your performance and your, you know, go get it attitude, it, that you're, you're going to spin your wheels. You have, and that's, I think, you know, to kind of wrap all this into one thing, like that's why I'm bouncing from product to product. Not to mention, I created a, a, a ride symbol for Zildjian and I'm working on some other things, but I don't settle for things. Like I'm always looking to get better in one way or another, personally musically, business-wise, and learning. So if you're not learning, you know, you're going backwards in, the, in today's day and age. Absolutely. I, could, I couldn't wrap it up any better than that. Um, Pat, I'd love to come back uh, in, in the near future and, and do a part two. There's a lot that we didn't, uh, weren't able to get into, but um, when, why don't we talk about the the band when it where can we see them do you have any tours planned coming up or there's or? no there's no tours i mean the band has just got together and and it's going to be a pretty steady thing but we're looking to book things now so hopefully we'll be busy in the spring more busy in the spring our debut is monday january 16th at the cutting room in new york city at 7 30 and you can get tickets online for that and then um we're going to take like february to in march you know, wait for the weather to get a little better here in the Northeast and book something right towards March or April and hopefully play a bunch, you know, into the summer. And uh, they're all very busy musicians, but I'm sure I'll get the majority of the band in at one point, but I have uh, a good collective of people to be in the group. And it's a fun R&B, big band. We play a lot of great charts. We do some original arrangements of some classic album deep album cuts of earth Wind, and fire and, and uh, stevie wonder and some george duke and again original couple of original original cuts from one of our band members so uh, it's the nyc big rhythm band all right well we will link to a lot of the things that we covered we'll link to those in the show notes so anybody that's listening all you have to do is visit creativeconfidential.net You'll see Pat's episode up on the website. Click through and you'll have all the information there. Pat, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking an hour oh, out of your man. day to, to hang with me. Please, I appreciate it. And uh, we're looking forward to doing part two soon. We will. I all appreciate right. all your, everything you're doing for, for the information that you're giving out to people that's priceless. And, uh, you know, people should be taking advantage of, of the knowledge you have and, and helping them advance their careers. Well, I appreciate you saying that. All right, Pat Petrillo, the hardest working man in show business. We will talk <laughs> to you soon. Thanks, brother. See you later. All right. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential. To get future episodes, subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud or Stitcher or visit us on the web at creativeconfidential.net.